Fredology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. All right, so I am so excited to bring back someone by popular demand. I've got Alexander Hall with me today. Thanks for coming back to Fraudology. Hi, Carice. Yeah, anytime. I, lo- I love the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. If you have not listened to the first episode with Alexander, I highly recommend it so you can know more about his very unique story and where he's coming from. He runs dispute defense consulting. And a lot of people would think that two consultants would, I don't know, be territorial or something. But I reach out to Alexander when I have questions and he does the same for me. And I think we both come at things in a different way and have unique, just unique perspectives. Certainly don't see him as a threat. I see him as an absolute joy to have added into our ecosystem. And hopefully he doesn't see me as a threat either. (laughs) (laughs) No way. I thought it would be great to have you come on and kind of let us dive into a little bit more of the good stuff, so to speak. Not that your life story is not really good and interesting, but you and I get to have some good conversations offline when they aren't recorded about what would you do for this or what about that? And so I think that was part of my thought process in bringing you back was let's just kind of nerd out a little bit. That's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) I love the opportunity to talk about work. So let's do it. (laughs) I think you and I both love what we do. So it's not really work. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. This is fun. It's exciting. Uh, I love fraud prevention and having the insight from the other side just allows me to know what's coming out, what's been out and uh, hopefully help with the development of good practices. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest things I've struggled with over the years and maybe not, I probably didn't value it as much as I have in the last few years is how important it is to think like a fraudster, to understand how they think and that they're not thinking, how can I hit this specific company? They're thinking, how can I get that thing? And all the different ways that they're doing that and what's at their disposal. And you have that in spades. (laughs) You have that way better than me. (laughs) So that is a good thing. And I think, too, something that I've found in talking to people who have been in fraud, who were on the other side of the fence of creating fraud for so long, a lot of you guys are like people that have quit smoking or recovering alcoholics, right? Like you have less patience or you have more, even more sense of justice than maybe I do even for people that are committing crimes. Would you say that's safe to say? (laughs) I think it is. And I think it's more out of, we see the value of what we used to do and being able to translate that into something that's effective. It allows us to, since we already had 
sort of a prestige on the other side of the fence. It's a quick way to get it over here for good, for a good mm-hmm. purpose, something that we can promote to the world, something that we can come out of the shadows, be proud of, reflect on. And then, of course, I mean, getting paid isn't a bad thing. We get to be proud of ourselves. And yeah. so when you're a fraudster, you go from living in the shadows and worrying about people ripping you off and taking advantage of you, being attacked, being busted, being the doors kicked in, to being celebrated for your contribution. So it's a great mm. brand new feeling that is something that you can go to the highest mountaintops and scream about when there's success. Other than that, it's hard work. Get to it and see how it turns out. So yeah, it's, it's definitely a lot more fun and exciting to be on the right side of the fence. Yeah, you and I were talking about that a little bit yesterday, and I kind of think this applies to almost anything in life, but there's the short-term gain, but the long-term downsides, and then there's the long-term gain, but the short-term pain, so to speak. And I used to have a mentor that used to say, you have to pick your pain, that doing nothing and being complacent is also painful just down the road. So whether that's, I'd much rather watch Netflix today than to answer these emails, but those emails are going to be there tomorrow and I'm going to, you know, feel guilty all the way to when you're a fraudster. I mean, the money is much better on that side, but it's easy come, easy go. You're also Mm -hmm. worried about all the things you listed. You don't have that sense of pride. Even if you are very well respected within the fraudster community, which you were, that doesn't have the same sense of pride as knowing that your kids are going to be able to be proud of you and that you're not going to have to worry about spending time in prison or anything like that. 100%. At one point, I think I said it in our last call, at one point, my daughter's going to be old enough to have her own opinion of who daddy is. Mm -hmm. And it's at that point that I want to make sure she has good information to go off of than a shadowy existence. Where do we get all these expensive things? Oh, I don't know. Exactly. I want my baby to answer the questions herself, see it firsthand Dad worked and hard. know that her daddy is someone that she can be proud of. Yeah. So that, right. you nailed it. And she's three. And you told me yesterday that one of her new phrases is based on my observations. <laughs> yeah. So I could just hear her say when she's older, based on my observations, I'm very <laughs> proud of my dad. <laughs> That's the goal. Absolutely. Currently it's based on my observations. I need more cold milk. <laughs> I miss Hopefully that. It will. And I know for me, like when my daughter got older, I got a big sense of pride when I'd hear her tell her friends things like, you shouldn't put the name of your school on your Instagram, or you shouldn't be friends with these guys, or my mom boss bad guys online. It's oh, Your heart beats just a little bit. That's so cool. You're a superhero <laughs> mommy. That's it. <laughs> Something like that. Now that she's a teenager, I'm not quite sure she totally thinks that all the time. Totally. <laughs> So, you know, I want to just kind of dive right in a little bit. It seems like a lot's happened in the world of fraud even since the last time we spoke. I feel like with the economic downturn in the U.S. especially, but all over the world, that's creating a new... There's always been career-level fraudsters, but now there's people that are doing it out of a sense of need, whether they're committing fraud to feed their family and not make a profit, or they're committing fraud to make a profit and feed their family or however that works out. There's that, there's refunding fraud, there's PPP fraud, there's unemployment fraud. There's so many different layers of it. What are some tactics or methods that you think may be getting overlooked during what I'm kind of referring to as this fraud blizzard or fraud hurricane? I would say that there's two things to really consider. One has to do with the psychology of a fraudster. I outlined in my School of Fraud series over on Tweezel, there are two primary things to consider when thinking about fraud, the landscape of fraud as it evolves, how it's been, 
just where you sit in fraud, in my opinion, or where merchant sits in fraud or a company of whatever. And the thing is, the two key items is one, the psychology of a fraudster, which I covered in my School of Fraud Tweezel series over on Tweezel. During my decade of operations, I went through seven significant psychological changes that adjusted what my methods that I employed were, kind of what the requirements of my methods were. So when you consider the psychology of a fraudster, you're going to see that one, they come in different groups. There are, like you just said, there's dishonest customers, there's professional fraudsters, and then there's desperation fraudsters, people who are maybe on the fringe, but they learned about these things. So they're like, oh, now I lost my money. I lost my job. I need to do something to support my family. And so they do that. Now, their justification can range, of course. They can be either broke, they can have a family to take care of. Maybe their husband or wife got laid off as well, and they need to supplement that. The justification to them will change and it varies. But for merchants, I think the most important thing to understand is that there isn't one definitive psychology of fraudsters. There's a full spectrum of them. And so it's important to, instead of trying to preempt a mindset with a fraudster and stop a fraudster type from getting into your system, you should leverage this knowledge of these different spectrums in psychology to make sure they can't get in no matter what they try. Right. Make sure you know where your holes are. Make sure you know where your vulnerabilities are and put some walls up. Make sure that you're defended. So that's the first thing. That's the psychology of it. The second thing is the fact that all merchants fit somewhere. All companies that participate in these transfers of value, they sit somewhere along another spectrum, which is, as a fraudster, I always viewed it as like a revolving door. You have companies who just start and they have no fraud prevention mm. or very light fraud prevention. They don't know what fraud looks like for them. And then you have very robust systems that kind of kill a mosquito with a bazooka who don't even need everything that they have, but they just employ the entire spectrum of fraud prevention to make sure that they're as protected as possible. So there's somewhere in the middle that's most effective, which is what applies to you, what do you employ, and who's trying to come after you. If you get those concepts under wraps, you'll take care of the orthodox methods from the past that are still being perpetuated today. Mm -hmm. You'll also take into consideration the PPP, the EIDLs, the unemployment, the this or this, and you should be good to go. You make it sound so easy. No, I'm with you. I mean, I think that's something that the retailers really learned this past year is they've been so focused on professional fraud or payment fraud, really, with stolen credit cards. And then this new type of fraud comes in with refund fraud, where it looks the same. So the fraud technology that they've been able to use to determine it at the time of purchase doesn't work anymore. And now it's post-transaction and they really have to you know, rethink everything. And, and that's not to their detriment or anything, but it's that was death by a thousand paper cuts because they may not be these big professional fraudsters, but they're all of these people who are looking for either it's opportunistic fraud or desperation fraud or whatever it is, however they've justified it. And so you're having to look at it from lots of different angles. You're not just looking at stolen credit cards anymore, for example. That's kind of the first thing that popped in my head as you were talking. Like, yeah. When I talk with companies that are experiencing something new and they already, they feel like they, they've got a pretty good handle on keeping out the majority of fraud, but oh my gosh, this new thing, it's usually because they're not looking at the side door because they have one idea of what fraud looks like. And I've been guilty for that too. Certainly, I think that's something that we have to learn that where there's a will, there's a way and right. they're going to find any way possible. They're not going to just go through the front door if the front door is harder to get through. Sure. And so you just said that you're guilty of it, but I think it's nothing to be guilty of because mm -hmm. it's two sides of the same coin. If you stop one really effective fraudster who is guilty of $5 million in losses, mm -hmm. 
you stopped his operations in the future. However, if you stop a thousand operations worth five hundred dollars each, mm-hmm. you stop the same thing, and, and it's going to be stopped as long as those people are locked up, or maybe it, maybe they're going to turn to the right side of the fence now. Whatever it may be, but you've effectively done this. It's just the group mentality versus the individual mentality. Right. It's all effective. There's no problem with that. Good point. I think, though, as fraud fighters on this side of the fence, and I know you can understand this too, and both in your full time work in fraud prevention as well as working with clients, that you want to stop all fraud, right? Oh, like it's you don't want one percent. No, I need to stop all the bad guys, and at the same time, also allowing all the good transactions coming in. It's this tightrope that we go on that. Yep. I think we all live for the thrill of the game, so to speak, like trying to make sure we do the best we can on both angles, <laughs> balancing that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> For sure. But yeah, I would, are there any specific tactics or methods that you think are getting overlooked? Is there anything you're seeing from low-level criminals or others or things you just haven't really heard talked about much? So there's another concept that I talk about, which is a play on the term WYSIWYG. So <laughs> developers, it's what you see is what you get, right? It's mm-hmm. the acronym for it. What I put out there into the world is what you see is not what you get. And what that means is When you see a transaction in a system or you see an application for a new line of credit or you see any form of account creation or whatever, what you see is what they put into the form. And that makes Mm -hmm. sense. But what you don't see is the fact that there's 20 accounts being made by the same person, 20 transactions being made Mm -hmm. by the same person across different systems, maybe systems that are in your merchant network or out of your merchant network. Then you go back a little bit more and you start to realize that did they build profiles to establish these lines of credits? Did they just buy the information online that was already established? Did mm. they hijack someone's credit? Da, 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 all this stuff. So the first one is what you see is not what you get. It's a very important, and you say this all the time, I'm preaching to the choir, think like a fraudster. It's important mm. to try to put together how this information might have come about and also see how it links to other attempts in your system. Mm-hmm. Because as you said, death by a thousand paper cuts, if you have a system in place that catches the same phone number, the same mailing address across all your systems, not just credit card numbers, because of Mm -hmm. course, credit card number can be used across 20 different accounts. But if all these 20 accounts are shipping to the same address, that should raise a flag. So it'd be important whenever you're doing fraud prevention to check variables other than just the single transactions on one account, you know, have something in place. Link analysis. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That would be one. Two, understand the value of social engineering. A sprinkle of social engineering goes miles, especially in my experience. So say I grabbed someone's ID and it was a very skinny person, a skinny person's ID who happens to have the same complexion I do. When I go up and I try to present this ID, no one's going to be like, oh boy, you gained some weight. (laughs) (laughs) No one's going to challenge that. Because it was like that social thing, right? Like they're not going to say it's not you. They're going to be like, oh, okay, sure. Yeah, I don't know. That makes sense. Exactly. So that was something that we employed all the time. Get a fat person's ID for a skinny person. Get a skinny person for a fat person. That's just what it was. Hmm. So taking advantage of people's inability to question things because they don't want to be rude. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. One suggestion I have for merchants is challenge the information on the card. What's your address? What is your birthday? I've seen birthdays be asked and be failed and immediately the transaction be killed. Yep. Even going into, at one point, we had a fake ID and it was for my wife <laughs> and we went into a Dottie's and they- Is that like a cafe? ID. It's a little casino is what it is. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
So we went in and her driver's license had been stolen or was missing or whatever. So I just gave her one of these and we walked in and the person did not buy it one bit. She said, <laughs> what's your birthday? And I had just given it to her. Right, so she was right. like, sometime in October. Oh. <laughs> That's an easy one. It wasn't that yep. big of a deal. It's stupid, but yeah, it, it was shut down real quick immediately. Mm. Asking questions outside of, of being based on the picture is important. Understanding social engineering lives everywhere. And I guess the only other concept is understand where your vulnerabilities are. If you participate in the transfers of value of just in-store cash, your strategy looks a lot different than someone like Walmart. Like mm -hmm. I, I think we went over this in the last call. Understand where your vulnerabilities are as a merchant. Every place where you stand to lose, make sure you're implementing proper procedures at each checkpoint. In my opinion, I tell my clients, what do you need? Not what am I selling? I can yep. sell data point transaction analysis. I can sell chargeback representments or processing. I can sell identity verification. Mm -hmm. But what do you need? And then you make your strategy about what they need instead of just trying to sell them a product. That's, 100%. I think that's yeah, a lot of times they don't know what they need. So sometimes, and I know you do this too, like asking for you, you're saying, what are your transfers of value? For me, I'm saying, what are the points of payment? Do you offer promo codes? Do you offer this? Do you offer that? Do you have accounts where people log in? And usually based on the vertical that they're in, the average dollar amount that they have, whether they're shipping items or whether it's digital delivery, whether it's recurring or one time, like all these different things, I can usually pretty quickly go, okay, these are the four things that you need and you don't need those other six things. And I know you're the same way. I'm actually talking about bringing you in on a small project pretty soon. And, and we were talking about that yesterday as far as, oh, yeah, they don't really need that, but they need this. They don't know what they need because they're a relatively small-ish company that's getting big quickly because there's so much more transactions online and they've been burned once and don't want to be burned again. I really wish that more merchants understood that they needed to put some prevention up front ahead of time. But a lot of these newer companies don't realize what they're agreeing to when they sign up for accepting payments online until they get that chargeback notice. That's to your painful. point, check out who your service provider, if you're oh weighing my out your options, please scour the market. <laughs> Make sure you can have a thousand vendors to offer data point transaction analysis, but without looking into how it fits into your system, you're not going to know which is best for you. So, so make true. sure. Yeah, yeah, same with merchant processing, right? Like I was telling you yesterday that I had a smaller company come to me and they were referred to me by someone and they were just freaking out because they had every reason to win the chargeback, but because it was accepted through PayPal, they couldn't go through an arbitration. And had they gone through another processor, I would have bet money that they would win the arbitration because more information came in between during the sure. chargeback process where the customer reached out and admitted that they had, they knew the terms and they had used the product, all the things. If they had the option to do arbitration, I mean, it was an $18,000 transaction. Like I'll take the $700 penalty if we don't win, but let's try and so it, it is important to look at those things because not all payment processors, not all fraud vendors, not everything is created equal. And I would say too, that there are several fraud companies that I think highly of that I will recommend for some of my clients, but not all of them, because there's not one company that you know fits for everyone. Right. Uh, I know that's not what every vendor wants to hear, but I think actually, and I've heard this from merchants when they have a vendor say, oh, you know what? We may not be right for you. They respect those people so much more and they go tell five friends because they know it's not just about the sale. They're really wanting to make sure that they're going to be the best product for them. 
100%. That's something that dispute defense that I'm, that I aim to, I guess, mimic actually is what it is. I've reached out to, I think I've reached out to a total of 60 different fraud prevention vendors just so I can get through their demo, ask them Mm -hmm. questions, see what they do in these what if situations. And then I aim to supplement them in order to kind of expand their offerings so that they can maintain their market share and be as effective for their clientele as possible by just kind of sneaking in my approach on their behalf. So I'm with you 100%. What works for this vendor or for this merchant over here might not work for that merchant over there based on price, based on data points, based Mm -hmm. on X, Y, Z. Implementation, right. Yeah. So I'm with you 100%. Yeah. Sometimes it takes the mental gymnastics and you're like, okay, they can't implement something, but we can do this and we can do that and this piece and that piece. And yeah, that's something that I just admire the fact that you've done that because it's so much time and so many demos and all that, but yeah. it's so <laughs> helpful for your clients because merchants don't have the time to do it either. And so I try to do that as well. Like I was talking to a company last week that I've known for like seven, eight years. And I was like, I have a feeling that you guys are doing different things than a few years ago when we talked and they're like, oh yeah. And I'm like, I'd like to know what that is. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> there have been other times where I've gone through demos and I'm like, oh yeah, nope, I'm going to save everyone the time. (laughs) And I don't mean that in a mean way, just, yeah, it matters. (laughs) You made it pretty, but you (laughs) dumped the utility. Uh, You (laughs) took the wheels off, but it's painted a nice color. Gotcha. (laughs) Yeah, yes, that happens. Since we're both consultants, I thought it'd be a missed opportunity if we didn't not just demonstrate some of our advice on this episode, but provide some to some companies that have reached out to me recently. So one thing I knew you could help with because we talked a little bit about this on the last episode, but did not dive into it more. And I've seen several real life examples of it since. I'll kind of explain the situation because I think I know what you're going to say, but I may be wrong. Some online merchants have seen logins on a new device. So they'll occur on an account where the card is expired. The card is then updated with the same bin and a new last four or six digits with a new expiration date. But the address isn't updated, but there's a positive ABS. So from those things, you can assume that it's as if the real card holder entered their new card number. If they didn't see that part, they would think it was account takeover because it was a new device or a new IP address. Or they then, after getting that positive ABS, usually on a $0 auth, once they update that, then a large dollar purchase. So everything else looks kind of suspicious, except for the fact that that card has just been updated. It's not a whole new card with a whole new address. I guess what I say, but then they assume it's the cardholder because of everything, but then they get a charge back a few months later. What do you think is happening? There's a few different scenarios that I can think of. The first one would be if you say, for example, you use a system that tracks the last four, the expiration date, doesn't hold the CVV, but does put mm-hmm. it through, for example, for an authorized.net yep. annual the first process. transaction. Yeah. Yeah. So when you do something like that, I think we know. They don't require everything, which leads it to be possible to use math as a payment method because mm-hmm. it's just the number and the expiration date is, is very superficial. After my experience as a fraudster, the expiration date is extremely superficial. I've used my own cards mm. and intentionally put in the wrong expiration date just to experiment and it goes. It so, depends on the issuing bank. So I have a bank that is very heavy on security, which sometimes is really annoying Like I made a large purchase on food delivery app and we had friends over, this is pre-pandemic and my card got shut down because they thought that it got stolen because they see a lot of fraud on that app. And I was like, no, that was me. I just, (laughs) we had another family over. So yeah, it was like 150 bucks, but I didn't feel like cooking because I had a big day of work that day or whatever. 
so they do those things. But also if I even get my expiration date wrong by one digit, they decline the whole transaction. So it depends on the issuing okay. bank. Okay. So in the lowest end spectrum. But for most of them, they don't care. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> you can use uh, whatever it is. So at that point, then you're reliant upon if the AVS comes back, you got to make sure that your bin is for something somehow geographically related to that area, of course. Mm -hmm. So you would target that bin. Maybe there's a credit union that only operates in two or three zip codes. So you're familiar through experimentation to know exactly where that is on the inside of, say, 20 kilometers or however they want, 20 miles, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. So that's one way to get it through is by using this, right? What I would suggest at that point is, I mean, simply- So can you expand on the math as a payment method? That was kind of what I was hoping for, because I think a lot of people, or I hear a lot of, like I've heard some consumers say, I don't understand how my card keeps getting compromised. Every time I get a new card, they figure out, or they know what the new number is, all those things. So there's other applications as well that I can't think of right now, but I just don't think enough- people in fraud prevention know how simple it is to not just guess, but know what the next card number is going to be if a card is declined or expired. Sure. So yeah, this is something that I was always nervous to talk about because exactly like you just said, it's so Mm -hmm. simple and it can be applied in so many ways. So to talk about it. um, But the bad guys know it too. That's kind of what I've come down to terms with. Oh, that's great. (laughs) There's been apps that have been removed and then renamed and put back onto the Google Play Store. Uh, the Apple store, uh, there's websites that you can go to and just mm. <laughs> type in right. the first 12 and generate it's yeah. So it's ridiculous, but from a 10,000 foot overview, what it is, the way that I explain it is if you take any 16 or 15 digit card number and you see the last four is for example, 0001, the next mm-hmm. number is not 0002. It's going to be something else that's based on the loons algorithm. So mm-hmm. what fraudsters do is they'll take a, valid card number. It could even be a card number that they own or a card number that they bought, or even what I was using was a burnt list of card numbers Mm -hmm. that had a full batch report of a bunch of credit card numbers, none of which were good, but every single solitary one of them could be generated on. So then you can find the next. So the way it works is you take a card number, you subtract the last four. So you're down to 12 or, or 11, whatever it may be. And then you just generate numbers. And if it fits Loon's algorithm, you effectively have valid card numbers. Then the only question is, even though they're valid, do they have funds on them? So Mm -hmm. then by hijacking a merchant account number, you can go through and just one by one call, attempt a dollar transaction, go again. And the magic with the merchant account number is those numbers can be generated as well. So when you make a call and they ask you for your merchant account number, as long as you know how many digits it is, just Mm -hmm. go for it. I don't think I tried more than four at any given time before I luckily got one. That's on like an IVR system, like the automated telephone system to get an authorization. That's how you do it. Like, (laughs) remember that when Chris Kattan kept calling and talking to the girl to run approvals? Oh, vaguely. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) It it was exactly that. And you just pop in another number with another expiration date that's in the future. It's as simple as that. Think of calling the IVR system anymore just because everything's so high tech these days. But that again shows like, that's probably where a lot of people aren't looking anymore. As important as it is, and you're the go-to for this, as important as it is to identify new trends, watch Mm. the data and see what's new, it is absolutely equally important to understand how old things are still relevant and where they're still relevant. Checks are still relevant. So many people look at them as being archaic, only for payroll, only for B2B. No, you can use them for cashing. You can use them for establishing accounts. You can use them for payment. 
they are still just as effective. No one wants to turn down money. Mm. Everyone just needs to be aware of that. No, such a good point. And I I feel like the longer I'm in this industry, the more I start to see things cycle through. And I'm like, oh, we saw that six years ago, but in a little different way. I kind of feel like the fraud historian in some ways, because people are like, what? But it really is what goes around comes around. And it's not about the method. It's about obtaining that thing. So a fraudster isn't thinking, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna commit ATO, or I'm gonna use this, or I'm gonna do that. It's all about the thing that they want. So they're going to use whatever tool in their toolbox, so to speak, in order to obtain that item. It's not about, oh, I'm going to commit carding today, traditional carding. No, I'm going to do whatever it takes. (laughs) Absolutely. They're not limited by their methods and they're not limited by our definitions. And like I just explained, math is a payment method and technical ATO for the merchant call takeover. Mm -hmm. That's multi-system exploits just Mm -hmm. right there. And so it's any combination of methods, it's any exploratory methods, anything that they want to go discover more. There are no rules to a fraudster. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they don't have PR departments, they don't have policy and privacy departments, certain guidelines and rules. They don't have to sit through meetings and ask permission for budget. Like they just go do it. Exactly. And that's something that I've never gotten so frustrated with an organization for not wanting to fix their fraud than I did with some particular government agencies over the summer that I knew were having fraud issues. And I tried to reach out with the goodness of my heart, not even to pitch myself as a consultant, but just say, hey, here's some information. I'm working with another organization that is very similar to yours. This is helping them. I just want to help you. Like I was in that kind of mode. And one organization essentially told me to screw off. Others told me they didn't have a problem. And now I see all these headlines about how easy it was to chat. But the whole thing I'm saying is I, with that, I was just so frustrated that one time I was like, listen, do you realize that fraudsters don't ask for budget? I understand that you're like, we can't afford this, but they're not asking for budget. So you guys, you know, lost a billion dollars in order to help fix your problem. I'm asking for less than six figures. Come on. (laughs) I've never been so frustrated. Usually I'm like, hey, it's a business decision. I get it. But when it comes to government agencies and entities, I kind of feel like that's not just my tax money. That's everyone's tax money. And I would get very frustrated. And that was something that I said once or twice. I don't think it moved the needle, but it was just- And with your example specifically, you talk about the setting that it was in. That's not just government money. That is quite literally money that was supposed to be going to people. Yes, to people that needed it. And that was also very hard to me. And then it also caused the people who deserved it weeks or months to get it because there was such a backlog now. And I mean, there was such a domino effect that I was very frustrated, not because I was a consultant trying to make money. I was just trying to lend my skills. Obviously, there was a wall where I'd say, okay, I, I can give you all this. But then after that, like for specific processes and specific strategy stuff and what tools would work best and what systems and everything I do need yeah. transfer of value, as you say. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. I think I gave away more than most other consultant would give. And still, they weren't welcome. So that was frustrating in a lot of levels. Because usually it's like, yeah, it's a business decision for your company. You're going to lose money and you got to tell it to your shareholders, not me. So whatever. But in this case, it was triggering, I guess, in a lot of ways. Like, so I got a little frustrated, but it's just the truth, right? Fraudsters don't ask permission. They don't ask for budget. So you've got to be willing to like, you know, invest a little bit to try to make sure that they stay away. And it's never about unrunning, outrunning the bear. It's outrunning everyone else who's outrunning that same bear. Yes. <laughs> when yes. it comes to fraud. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
when it comes to math as a payment method, are there any card brands it doesn't work for? Like Not there's Visa, MasterCard, Discover, Amex. Yeah, every single time I've ever come across mm-hmm. it. And then in, in many other settings as well. Yeah. I was going to ask about like gift cards or prepaid cards or any of that. Yep. 100%. Of course, nothing is definitive. Like I'm not going to say that there yeah. is one out there that does not work, but right. I've had extensive experience with all different sorts of cards and numbers, yeah. and X, Y's and Z's and every single one that where there's a claim about Loon's algorithm, like certain banks use won't issue bank account numbers that don't fit, mm. fit Loon's algorithm. And they right. might be 14 digits. It might be 19 digits. There's some crazy variables out there. Right. But yeah, Loon's algorithm is used almost universally. It's definitely a 99% rule with exceptions that I have not found yet. Let's just add that to the list of the complaints I have for issuing banks and just the system in general that I wish they would maybe take more seriously. And I'm sure it would be very challenging to rewrite all the things that go into determining card numbers and they need to make sure that there's no one that's being you know, duplicated and all the other things. But I remember learning about Loon's algorithm, gosh, like in 2003, when I first started in merchant processing. And I think for the longest time, I thought, oh, surely like that's been fixed. And I think I had been told at one point that at least one of the card brands had fixed it or something. And so I just assumed every fraudster had to have a new list of compromised cards, but that's not the case. There's so many, you can buy a dead list for pennies on the dollar, if that And there's a few different exploits you can do on that. You can also do phishing calls and things like that and say you're from the bank because you have their bin number and which bank is theirs and all of that and get the updated card. But why do that when there's apps and other things that allow you to... To your point, so this is one thing that I also mentioned over in the Tweezel School of Fraud is Mm -hmm. that every fraudster's operation is based on three pillars. And it makes sense. It's identification information, it's payment information, and it's system knowledge. Now, in this case, the payment information is only, say, a 1 out of 10 because it's just the card number and the expiration date. You don't have the CVV. You don't have the billing address. You don't have the name that goes associated Mm, with it. You don't have anything other than the card number and then an expiration date that's in the future. You don't even have the right one. So now with this low setting on the payment information, you now need a low setting in the system knowledge. Because of this ever-revolving door that Mm. happens with payment processors, people who process payment merchants and and companies, that wide spectrum that I mentioned earlier. So there's people who want to save a buck on every single transaction. There's people that want to save a buck on employing this new software that's robust. They're always going to exist. And this is quite literally what perpetuates fraud is the fact that Mm. there's always going to be someone who accepts the bare minimum and they're going to get exploited. So until universally everyone takes fraud seriously and actually looks into what it takes to defend themselves, Simple little things like this, like math, can literally exploit your company. And and you just, <laughs> I, I would imagine people want to be more aware and do something to fix it. But again, as long as you're right. clicking the right boxes and the, the shareholders or the people above you are happy with your progress, I guess you don't care. It's a challenge for me sometimes that <laughs> there's a you know large company that I worked with recently that they didn't actually care that they were losing an insane amount of money in chargebacks because they were still profitable. But what they did care about was their shareholders and the goals of the company. And they weren't going to be able to reach those goals if they kept letting in all that fraud. So I had to say, hey, do you know what people are saying about your company online? Do you know that they're saying how easy it is to defraud you guys? That's a branding issue, right? So trying to make it less about just the money (laughs) because 
you know, to some companies, it's, oh my gosh, we're losing $10,000 a month. That's a lot. To other companies, it's, eh, yeah, we wrote off $10 million last month in chargebacks. It's a cost of doing business online. And you can prevent so much of that. That drives me crazy, but I've had those conversations and I have to take a deep breath. Okay, what do you care about? <laughs> you're in it to make money and your money is being stolen systematically. Come it. on. <laughs> but there's a lot of older school views that when you put any kind of friction in place, any at all, to right. stop that fraud, that you're going to lose the growth. And that's not the case. If anything, it actually, I think it's more quality over quantity. And I mean, that's like a whole other episode in its own, but that's what fraud managers are dealing with too. Like they have these frustrations too every day. And I have to remind myself, like I can take a deep breath and then go work with another company who really wants to learn and and wants to save money and wants to do it also because it's the right thing to do and not let crime. Because I mean, as we talked about in a previous episode with Matt, that Matt Vega, who was in military intelligence for counter fraud, a lot of criminal and fraud rings that are using stolen payments are funding other criminal behavior, whether that's terrorist organizations or drug rings or all the other things. So just as a member of society, as your business is a member of society, we should care about that too. It's not just all about the money plus or negative, but that is a big challenge. 100%. Um, yeah, and that's it's crazy because that goes so deep down the rabbit hole towards this very relevant end result. Mm. You're also funding these X organizations and all this yeah. stuff. But even on a superficial level, something that gets overlooked is the fact that someone is stealing someone else's money, spending it at your company, and you're right. okay with that. You think that yeah. because your margins are this and, and that you're okay with the percentage of growth this month? You're cool with that? I mean, on a superficial level, that should be something that worries you, but I guess money's no, money. Yeah. And it depends on the executive that I'm talking to, but sometimes I'll say, hey, have you ever had your card stolen somewhere? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, where? And they know exactly where it is. And right. I'm like, they don't know the bank. They don't know who did it, but they know exactly where that card was stolen. And I'm like, and do you feel like that company is safe and secure and really protected your money that wasn't theirs to spend? No, I told like, and how many people did you tell? Not my Citibank card or my Capital One card or my Amex card was stolen, but my card was stolen and used at this company. Oh, probably a bunch. Okay. So do you think they all think that company doesn't have good security? And then they're like, their wheels are turning. And I'm like, how do you think the people, when they look at their card statement and they see the name of your company, do you think that they're feeling like you're secure? And that can help. It really depends. (laughs) on the person in the conversation. And I've had these conversations so much even before I became a consultant, but I know you're having them too now that you're a consultant too. And <laughs> I have to take a deep breath and be super patient, but it is a matter of principle as well. And I understand that like executives have so many other things to think about and sure. they're making decisions quickly and we're just looking at a small portion of their business, but still sometimes we have to learn what they care about to be able to do it. You touched on something that I think is worth exploring a little bit, system failures versus, or system issues versus tactics. You know, like just using examples, are fraudsters looking at the platforms that merchants are on, or are they just kind of going through the process and going, oh, okay, I don't have to put in this, or they're not checking AVS, or they're not doing that. And I know it's hard to say it without certain names, so that's going to be the challenge. But you and I will probably know which ones we're talking about. Most people (laughs) listening will know as well. Maybe we can pick on payment processors or fraud or whatever else, but maybe just using an example of 
how a fraudster might be like, oh, okay, I was able to do this exploit on this company and this is the system they use. Now can I replicate it across others? You just nailed it. So that's one trail. So at a 10,000 foot overview, if you were to consider the very standard and what I consider low level fraudster stuff where you go on the dark web, you buy some card numbers, you fill in the blanks and you hit submit, right? Mm -hmm. I got out of that two months into it, and that was a very basic thing. However, making my own information, establishing my own credit lines, controlling things like this, maybe security breaches from some cybersecurity personnel, stuff coming to me, however other information came to me, Mm. I then accumulated what is a mountain of information. So I could do exactly what you just said. Let's see if Best Buy is vulnerable, which, by the way, they have a very robust system. There's things that work, but that's a lot of work. It's something that I... yeah was not willing to go through. So kudos to Best Buy. (laughs) Um, But so if you want to go try it at any website or any place in store, online, whatever it is, you can just throw information at it and you can do a hundred attempts, change your IP address, change your phone, do this and that and see what works. That's what I call checklist building. And I don't Mm. know if there's an official word for it, but you throw a list of variables, like variable information, Mm. right? Payment information, identity of information, whatever it may be. You throw that at a system, see how it reacts, and then you change your list of variables to meet the checklist that ends up coming to fruition after a bunch of attempts. So to your point, if you experiment with Shopify, Magento, BigCommerce, you blah, 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 blah. When you find these, there are lists online that tell you, here's 30,000 merchants that are on the Shopify platform. Mm-hmm. So now if you figured out what works for Shopify, well, there's going to be variables. If you figured out what worked on Shopify, you can now just go through that entire list and find one that you like and throw the information, the appropriate information at it, and you got a 90% success rate. It's important to say that nothing is off the table, Hmm. but it's also, I mean, I could not say that one method was any more than another, because even though those are just for transactions, when you establish other accounts in other Mm. places, your identity information to establish an account somewhere, and then you see how it interacts with payment information. I mean, you got to understand we had mountains of information. No matter how many failed attempts I had, I wasn't running out. There's no Mm. question about that. There was so much cat and mouse. There was so much trial and error. It gave me the answers that I needed. Yeah. So sorry for the vague answer, but I mean, it really was that big. No, I get it. It's not, I mean, I think that's a good thing for people to understand. I mean, especially small businesses, but also big ones too. And I I can't remember if I mentioned this on a podcast or on a merchant collaboration call. So I apologize if everyone's heard this before, but GDPR in Europe, as well as the CCPB, the California Consumer Protection, is it Bureau or Act? I don't know. It's CCP something. They're both great legislation or both pieces of legislation that provide data privacy, but they do require companies to share what other vendors have access to their customer information, which includes fraud providers. So now more than ever, there's a lot of fraudsters that are able to just look at your terms of service and see who you're saying like that they're allowing their information to be shared with and can pinpoint, oh, okay, they're using that vendor, this vendor, that vendor. So even if they can't find a list of what shopping cart platform or commerce platform they're on or payment processor, et cetera, you can either see where the URL routes to during payment or you can now look in terms of service. And that's a downside of two really great pieces of law that I think had the best of intentions. But I'm seeing more and more fraudsters kind of targeting specific companies 
based off of what the vulnerabilities are. Like, oh, okay, I was able to get through the vulnerability on this company and this is their fraud provider. So now I'm going to look and see who else has used that fraud provider or that payment processor and I can replicate it. To your point, that's exactly when I mentioned earlier how I've contacted and attempted to partner with like 60 vendors out there. That's part of the conversation. When I say, what if this, or if I say, hey, I know that you work with a company and I got to keep it, of course, but I'm like, I try and give them a little bit of information towards what they could do to help this client, just as a freebie. Mm -hmm. Hey, we're talking, I'm aware of this, take this information, do what you want. But twice now, I've hit the nail on the head regarding two companies that hire two different services. Mm. And I told them exactly how their clients stand to be exploited and what they could possibly do to deter it. Mm. But yeah, to your point, if I know that a company uses this fraud prevention system and I was able to beat it, let's see who else is on their list. Let's go. Yeah. Yes, you're right. I just think that's something that people don't really think about as often. And I certainly never want to pick on fraud providers, but it is a very crowded market these days. And I feel like with capitalism, it's all about which ones succeed and which ones don't. And there's good and bad, and that's a whole longer thing. But it's important for companies to know that that may be something that makes them even more vulnerable. It can have the exact reverse action as well. Where a fraudster looks and goes, oh, crap, they use these guys. I haven't ever been able to circumvent those. So I'm just going to go somewhere else. And I'm not saying everyone's doing that. I think it's more like the top bosses that are looking for new exploits. There's so many copycat opportunities out there these days. I mean, shoot, you can look on TikTok or YouTube or anywhere else to look at, you know, those. So it really varies. But that was just something to consider. And I'm glad you brought that up from your perspective, too. I totally agree with you. And it is important to note that for everything that I say in regards to a shortcoming in fraud prevention or a way that it can be exploited or Mm. a way, there's 10 examples of how it operates perfectly. I often say where the holes are in an operation, but that doesn't mean it's all holes. I just want to point out what can be fixed. So I got to make sure everyone understands that listens. Yeah. I'm glad you say that too. I never want to pick on anyone because of their position within a big group, right? There's bad apples or whatever the phrase is, but it's plus and minus. I think the difference is when you're having those conversations with vendors, it's how they take that information. If they're like, wow, okay, I really want to know about that. Let's work together or whatever it is, or, you know, want to fix it to maybe them getting very nervous and making sure, you know, that you're under NDA and you can't tell anyone that. And I've had that spectrum and I would assume that you have as well. But it also helps which companies you're going to feel more confident referring your merchant clients to. Oh, exactly. Yeah, that's the whole goal. I want to be as helpful to everyone in the network, everyone in the community as I can. Mm -hmm. If a client of mine needs the right service, there's 20 vendors that provide the same service on paper. Right. But once you get down to the nitty gritty, you're going to find that this fit is best or this Mm -hmm. maybe the most expensive one is the one that's best. Maybe the cheapest one is the one that covers the bases that you need. Yeah. That's why having this wide network that we've established is Mm -hmm. just so important. And it um, is. Yeah, the vendors that I've spoken with, I think it's safe to say that I love them all, hmm. as far as the personalities involved. Yeah, yeah, Everyone seems to be really nice and really interested in what I have to say, so I've been well-received. Yeah, as you should be. Could... Well, and to your point, I think that you are very helpful in the industry. I really enjoy following you on LinkedIn. You post quite often, and I really admire that. I should be posting at least once a day or twice a day, and I just, I don't always know what to say, so I'm really impressed that you are you know, always providing really good, actionable information. 
So I hope anyone that's listening that doesn't follow you yet does, because I'm sure they'll be listening. Uh, I'm sure they'll learn things is what I meant to say. Like, I'm sure they'll be learning a lot. I do. And I have been in this industry a long time, but you have a really different perspective. And I think not just focused on CNP merchants, but you do understand this world quite a bit. And you were a CNP merchant after being a fraudster too. So that really gives you better understanding of what's available and just how important it is to sometimes use duct tape and bailing wire to keep the bad guys out. (laughs) Because sometimes that's all we have. (laughs) But additionally, I just wanted you to take a minute to be able to share with people where else they can find you besides LinkedIn. You mentioned your Tweezel course, and I feel bad that I didn't mention it at the beginning. I know a lot of people are interested in online training courses. Please plug away. Oh, awesome. Thank you. So yeah, Tweezel, T-W-E-E-Z-L-E is a continued education course, and they've invited me to come on and be a, I guess, one of the groundbreaking providers offering insight regarding what I call the school of fraud. In the School of Fraud over on Tweezel, I've taken my 10 years of experience, separated it into seven pivotal points along my progression as a fraudster, and made four 15-minute modules. I'm really happy with it. I introduced Mm. some pretty unique concepts that I'm happy with that should allow people to really understand what went on in my operations, so that way they can have a little bit more insight. Now, of course, I don't speak for every fraudster. Of course, I don't speak for for everybody, but this is my experience and I did experience pretty great success with it in a bad way, of course. Yeah, you can find me on Tweezle with the School of Fraud. Additionally, I'm on CNP as a subject matter expert and contributor. And that's, the oh my goodness, my life story has been put out there as it relates to fraud in two different articles called uh, Black Hat to White, The Evolution of a Fraudster. I'm so super excited to be a part of the CNP family. That's so awesome. Also, I got DisputeDefenseConsulting.com, and I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. So yeah, I invite anybody to stir up a conversation. I love to talk about fraud. So let's go. Well, and we'll (laughs) put links to those things in the show notes for anyone that wants to just go and click on them. So I'll make sure that happens. And Alexander Hall, I just, I really appreciate you. And like you said, you do have your own perspective. You're only talking about your perspective. There's lots of different methods of fraud and different people have different stuff, but same with fraud prevention. That's why I created this podcast was to have all of us be able to share our perspectives and our information with each other because it's just so valuable in an emerging industry. So I really appreciate you being a part of the fraud prevention. I don't know if we're a family, but we're the side of the fence. <laughs> and thank you so much for your time today as well. Thank you for having me on. This was a blast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. I am always happy to talk fraud anytime. And I know you are too. <laughs> again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.